So this evening I'd like to speak about faith, faith and aspiration, because it's a, a really important part of our spiritual path, of course. Each one of us has come to a spiritual path or this spiritual path because we have some aspiration. We may not acknowledge it every day or even when we're here in retreat. We may express it in different ways, but there is sure to be some commonality in, our, in the basis of that faith for all of us. We all have some kind of yearning, some kind of spiritual yearning, which is quite wholesome, actually. It's not this unwholesome wanting, but a wholesome turning of the mind towards what is good, towards what is liberating for ourselves and for others. This yearning that we have in common is to experience a life that is more peaceful, of course, that has... uh, a sense of the heart and mind being liberated from those traps that lead us to greed, hatred, and delusion. It's important to acknowledge that aspiration that we all have, not in the way of you know a wanting mind that needs to get something, but this aspiration has to do with letting go. In my experience, that word, aspiration, is a very spiritual word. It plays out in my own mind as a um, turning of my heart towards liberation. It's a heart that has enough clarity and enough courage to do that. Because certainly, as we all know, no matter how... uh, Short or long we've been on this path, it takes a lot of both courage and clarity to keep on going. It's the inclining of the mind and the heart towards that, in that direction, the direction that leads to ever-deepening compassion, which also leads to ever-deepening wisdom. So it's not so specifically goal-oriented because that leads to kind of a clinging, to kind of a holding on to an agenda-making that Steve spoke about last night. It's um, really knowing that we're going to have to face some dark places, some unknowns, being willing to face the places that are difficult, that are maybe not so unknown, but that are difficult over and over and over again. So this is what aspiration means to me, to many of you. It's that ability, that willingness to go towards the unknown, to go towards the difficult, and to stay with it to not give up. So for that, of course, we need a lot of confidence in ourselves. I think one of the um, important ways that I try to talk to people about their practice is to ask you and anyone who comes to me for any kind of help or guidance I ask the question, what gives you confidence and what confuses you also? And the question and the answer about what gives you confidence is so important for us to uh, acknowledge that in ourselves. What really gives us confidence because that builds faith in our practice, in ourselves. There's an old story I tell that has a lot of mileage, so I'll tell it again. When I went to Burma uh, for the first time, and I decided that I would go and ordain as a nun. I was, this wasn't that long ago. It was probably about seven years ago or so. Um, 
Seda Upandita said, why are you here? And I said, I'm here to clean my heart, to purify my heart, and to venture beyond past experiences, past knowledges. And he very calmly and in a straightforward uh, way that he usually addresses everyone, he says to me, you must be willing to invest everything you have in the practice to be able to take the step that you have the aspiration for. And what he meant by that is to recognize and to invest all of those places of confidence that I had in myself. All those factors of enlightenment, those five balancing factors, um, all of the strengths of goodness that I could recognize in myself and really uh, in my heart and really put that into practice. Faith is mentioned in the teachings, of course, various times, many times. And they say that basically there are three kinds of faith that we begin to deepen into. There's faith in the teachings when we begin to verify them for ourselves. There's faith in the teachers, the teachers that we choose to practice with. And there's faith in our own ability to do the practice. Now this last one is really key, faith in our own ability to do the practice. Because sometimes, of course, we come upon teachings that uh, can give us a lot of confidence and faith, and some are confusing. We don't know what they mean. Sometimes teachers, uh, we can't always feel like we connect with teachers or have faith in what they're presenting. Um, But Manindra used to always remind me that a perfect rose can come from an imperfect giver, even when we don't vibe with the teacher to listen to what the teaching is. But the key to it all, as I mentioned, is faith in our own ability. And this is what, uh, all along the way, I've had to work on. Um, I think like many of you, and I even heard today from one or two of you that you came to this practice, we came to this practice with uh, just an ability to recognize that this is home for me. The teachings seem like they really uh, are practical. They're like one student said, it's advanced common sense just to see that this is the way, this, this makes practical common sense. The teachers that I've chosen to practice with, I hear the wisdom and the compassion that comes from their hearts, and so I've continued on the way. But my downfall over and over again is faith in myself. Even when I was practicing well, you know, I was just born with this place of insecurity that I've had to overcome over and over again. It says that faith manifests as confidence, and this confidence leads to resolution and determination. And all along the way, I can see that for me and for many others on this path, many of you that I know really well, um, I see that that faith which uh, translates into resolution and determination is there. I mean, why else would it be on this path 20, 30 years later? We still keep going one foot in front of the other. It's interesting, I heard recently that confidence overcomes the hindrances of doubt and fear. So it's important every once in a while to ask ourselves, what do we have confidence in? Not just in what someone else says or even what the Buddha said, but what of our own experience do we have confidence in when we feel plagued with either doubt or fear? 
So because this is such an essential part of our undertaking, I wanted to put some light on faith itself and the characteristics of faith. First of all, over and over again in the, in the ancient texts, it says that faith is like a water-purifying crystal. It's this particular kind of crystal that goes into water that sort of settles all the sediment and makes the water clear. So this is what happens when faith is in the mind. It settles the sediment of the mind and helps the clarity the clear seeing of the mind so that wisdom can come about. It's also said that uh, faith is one of the five spiritual faculties. Faith needs to be balanced by wisdom. The other faculties are concentration and energy in balance. And the fifth one just for information's sake, is mindfulness. Mindfulness is said to keep faith and wisdom in balance and concentration and energy in balance. The Buddha said also that faith is the first of the four sterling qualities of a beautiful person, of a superior person. Faith, moral virtue, generosity, and wisdom. So in various places of the Buddhist teaching, faith is uh, put in a very important and essential category. The word for faith in the Pali language, Pali is the language that the Buddhist teachings were recorded in, one of the languages, This word is sada, S-A-D-D-H-A. And it can be translated into a deep confidence or conviction. Conviction is a strong word. It it implies to me that there's some unwavering in in the mind. It's not shaky at all. Sharon Salzberg, one of our colleagues who wrote the book, uh, Faith, and also wrote the book uh, Loving Kindness, describes this sada as to place one's heart upon. And I find that uh, very descriptive because it's not really placing your intellectual mind upon something. It's really placing your heart upon it, your deep conviction, your understanding that this is really true. So the experience of faith is from the heart. It's not really thinking your way through it. It's like a compass. Uh, A compass points us in the right direction. Like what is true north for us? What is the truth for us? This is what faith does for us. So this is conviction based on one's own experience. Uh, We may have heard things from others. We may have um, seen from others that that way, a particular way, has worked for them. But we know what works for us. We know what keeps our own heart and mind in balance. And we know what balance needs to be there in order to make the next step. This is what we can begin to have confidence in. And we can only know that when we're honest with ourselves, when we see for ourselves that uh, we need a little more energy or we need a little more concentration or we need to understand it more with wisdom or maybe we're thinking about it too much and it's not really wisdom. We really need to just take that half-breath of faith or that small step of faith. So faith here is not based on blind acceptance or blind belief, but it's in the choice to investigate what's really going on, what's really happening in this mind, in this body. 
I remember Manindra um, saying that people used to come to him and try to have these um, arguments with him about the Buddhist teaching or whatever Manindra was presenting of the Buddhist teaching. And he would remember to himself what the Buddha said when that would happen to the Buddha. The Buddha would say, "The the world argues with me. I do not argue with the world. Come and see for yourself. Ehipasiko. Come and try it for yourself. So I I remember that (laughs) when I am faced with that kind of situation. Just not to not to have to meet it in, in that way, but just to say, just try for yourself, see for yourself, don't take my word for it. Basically, the Buddha said that the teachers, or he as a teacher, can only point the way, but we have to walk the way. We have to find out for ourselves. Sometimes when Manindra would get a little, um, I, I guess in my perception, impatient with me in the past, um, he, he would say things like, the Buddha solved his problem. I'm solving mine. Now you have to solve your own. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, put it back in my lap. And not. Uh, he wouldn't try to give me all the answers. But knew that faith would develop by my just taking the next step and the next step. So, how is faith developed? Like many of you, there have been times, and maybe this is one of the times, that spiritual urgency has been awakened in us. And that spiritual urgency comes when we open to suffering, when we really open deeply to suffering. And it, it may be personal at first, but later on it becomes not my suffering, but the suffering. And we see the, the prevalence and the pervasiveness of it in the world and see how it's existential. It's not personal. So very early on for me in my 20s, which was almost uh, 40 years ago now, I was living in the Philippines. This is my birth country. And um, I left when I was two. I went, came to America, and I went back to live there when I was older. Um, Actually, I was 18, not that much older. I came from a poor family, but then I was married into a very rich family, very wealthy and powerful political family. And when I was in the Philippines during that time, I was surrounded by extreme poverty. And the, the, the space, the yawning space between where I lived my life and where those who were poor and um, didn't have a place to live or food to eat. That space was so large and so big, and so I saw that suffering also in a very big way. There was a lot of helplessness in my own heart about it. The suffering of life really stood out. And, you know, I was going through some suffering too. I felt like... I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I was too young and, you know, I was lived there for a few years, had three children. And um, life wasn't going so well for me. So that personal suffering and the universal suffering really, really stood out. It pushed me to a place of wanting to understand life more deeply, to wanting to understand how to go beyond that suffering. And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know how to do that. I was completely confused by 
that place that was spiritually opened uh, to me. I was raised as a Catholic, and which I still revere, that my background is that. But I saw that I couldn't depend on that, the practices of that anymore, to get me beyond suffering. Suffering just seemed to be something that was good to do, you know. But how to get beyond it in my own heart was not possible. So I wanted to clarify for myself how to get beyond this. What did I need to go beyond this? And because I opened to that suffering and because there was this aspiration or this kind of faith to go beyond what was previously known, I felt like there was a deep inner compass that was pointing the way. And to make a very long story short, I found my way back to America with three children and being a single parent, and I came upon the Dharma very soon after I arrived back in the United States. And so I I really felt that that aspiration was faith that was a compass to me, that showed me the way. I knew that I wanted to go beyond, understand what it was to be beyond that suffering. I knew that I wanted to become who I was, to become myself in the truest sense of the word. And that first Christmas that we were in America um, with the three children, I remember I interviewed my three little ones. One was five or six, and the other one was four or five, and then there was one that was two. And um, I still have the tape, and I listened to it a few years ago. And on the tape, I was asking my children, what would you like to be when you grow up? You know, I was trying to give them a sense of possibility in the future. And um, and so the littlest one, Tracy, said that she wanted to be a noise. And... Um, you know, and I thought, well, that's great, you know, and then the the middle one wanted to be something else like a doctor or a fireman. I, I don't remember. I'll have to listen to the tape again. But I do remember my eldest daughter, Rona, and um, I said, well, what do you want to be when you grow up, Rona? And she says, well, I want to be me. And here she's just a little kid. And I said, I was surprised, you know, I I was expecting something like more out of her. And I said, well, why? Well, why is it that you want to be me? And she said, well, if I'm not me, who will be me? You know? That was a real teaching to me at that time. That was a real opening to me of my own faith. Like, can I aspire to fully be the person that is there? You know, all the beautiful qualities of mind and heart that can be developed. I mean, I can say it that way now, but at that time I I wouldn't know how to say that. So can we acknowledge that in ourselves, um, you know, that aspiration to be, to develop in, in a very strong way the beautiful qualities of mind and heart where we are really a true human being. It says that faith seeks out special qualities. And so I saw that this was true, that by having this aspiration, opening to faith through suffering, that faith was seeking out special qualities, wholesome qualities. It says in the ancient text, the special qualities of virtue living a virtuous life, living a life of non-harming, and not just refraining from harming, but actually doing things that live in harmony, the opposite of that. So seeking out qualities of virtue in myself, how to encourage that, seeking out qualities of virtue in other beings, and um, being in their company, Sometimes 
we see that in our own lives that we're with certain people because they exemplify um, sympathetic joy or they exemplify generosity or they exemplify truthfulness. And for myself, I, I know that particular beings uh, have those qualities very naturally, very spontaneously. And I'm always, you know, with kind of a listening ear and an open heart to say and to see what, what I can open to, what I can, what I can engender more in myself also says that faith seeks out generosity, opportunities for generosity, for noticing that in others and for practicing it in ourselves. Faith seeks out good friends. And and this ties into what I previously said about virtue and generosity. Faith seeks out hearing the Dhamma, so isn't it true that, I mean, I'm sure you've heard this talk on faith many times. Somebody mentioned today in an interview, heard Gil giving a talk on faith, and I thought, oh, I was just going to give a talk on faith. But you know what? You, we can hear it. We can hear the Dhamma so many times. And it's, I don't know about you, but it's just received with open ears and open heart. And it's like, I feel like a sponge for the Dhamma. So faith has this seeking quality. Aspiration has this seeking quality. The same energy as want the wanting mind. But the wanting mind seeks out what is unwholesome. Aspiration or faith seeks out what is wholesome. So that's the big difference between the two. Every bit of what we go through in our practice, every bit of difficulty, all the suffering that we open to is so important because it continues to awaken us to where we were stuck, where we were sleeping, where we were ignorant, where we didn't know how to navigate so well. And we learn how to navigate that place in a more balanced way. It opens us, it awakens us to where we're not seeing clearly and when we have the aspiration to see this place more clearly, to see this experience more clearly, to be really honest with ourselves, to be humble. So it's faith that recognizes that we need to venture beyond this and not get trapped in the ways that seduce us to go around it or to go backwards and, um, you know, go to the places where uh, maybe we used to go because it made us feel better. But faith allows us to go through that difficulty and open to it and know how to Um, get burned by it and back away and come back to it with a little more protection, a little more balance. So it's a faith to venture beyond our habitual tendencies. These tendencies form deep grooves of thinking, speaking, and acting in our lives that we easily fall into. When we, when we get afraid of something, when we get worried about something, we go back to the ways that we can easily overcome that instead of being with the fear, instead of being with the worry. We fall into the habitual, what a yogi called once, cow paths of the mind. You know, those deep ruts where we can fall into. Somebody thought I said cow paths you know, one time, but and that's true too. Um, so reflect on that deep inner calling for you, that spiritual urgency that you have. Are you willing for that spiritual urgency to go through places of difficulty 
and not try to think your way out of it or um, go back to tendencies, ways of speaking, acting, and thinking that kind of... We go backwards then. We just go over the same old terrain. So venturing beyond. Venturing beyond takes a lot of willingness to go beyond what's familiar. Familiar, even though it's, you know, the familiar cow paths of the mind are comfortable. Can we open to discomfort? Can we open to being interested in what happens when we open to something uncomfortable in the mind, something difficult in the heart? Can we get curious about that? Can we be humble about it? You know, have enough humility to say, oh yeah, this is, you know, I, I, I'm feeling angry, or there's a lot of rage, or there's jealousy here. I forget who said that spiritual awakening is one humiliation after another. Just being able to be honest with that. So it brings about this steadfastness and this courage, the energy of courage to just keep on going. Once long ago, when I was in retreat, a long, longer retreat, I was far away from home. And, um, you know, all the ideas about, well, it's too hard. My children are calling me. I need to be home with them. I couldn't do that because I was in Australia. And, <laughs> and I had to take the same, that plane home that I booked. Otherwise, I'd lose the, the fare. And that was like, you know, a month away. (laughs) So I just had to keep on keeping on. And I went through a lot of suffering, a lot of physical dukkha. And it it was part of the process. And I remember reporting to uh, the teacher, Seda Upandita, and the translator was a monk from Nepal, Unyanaponika, another monk. And there were times when I'd report that the pain is so excruciating, I would just kind of fall in a puddle on the floor and cry and say, I'm, I'm going home. I want to go home. I can't stand this pain. I don't know how to handle it. I don't, I can't. It was so bad. And it was the doorway for me one, to a deeper spiritual awakening. And uh, Uniana Ponika would get up from his seat and walk back and forth and say, oh, there's so much suffering in the world. There's so much suffering in the world. And then they didn't know what to do with me, I think. I, I, they really knew what to do with me. But um, the translator said to me, um, when you can't keep going, then, I was saying in the walking practice, it's mo- most difficult. When you can't keep going, stop bend down, pull up your socks, and begin again. And I thought, oh, well, that must be the magic thing, you know, to do. And I really believed it. So I was pretty young, you know, I was in my early 30s or late 20s, and that's what I did. And um, I just had a lot of faith in the teachers and in doing that. And, And I could do that mindfully. I could stop, bend down, pull up my socks, and just keep going and begin again. And getting through that suffering was really needing to venture beyond, outside the, the walls of comfort for me. Um, said that the Bodhisattva, or the Buddha-to-be, before he became a Buddha, of course we all know that he was born into a royal family. And because of his very deep inner calling that was um, engendered for lifetimes and world cycles, he decided one day to venture outside those walls of comfort and luxury. And probably most of you know the story of 
the, the four uh, heavenly messengers, where outside of the walls of comfort and these walls of his regal life, he faced the messengers and the, the truths of sickness, old age, death, and also the truth of the ability to go beyond that by seeing the peacefulness of a, a mendicant meditative monk. And because he went beyond, he ventured beyond all of this, it began to open some deeper pathways of liberating wisdom for him. So I always remember this story that in order to get beyond, really have to go beyond the walls of comfort for myself. That deep inner calling to venture towards what is yet unknown. So this can be described as faith, to go towards what is yet unknown. And that requires us to go to places that are not only painful, but that are dark. And uh, we have to face a lot of the opposite of faith, which is doubt, not knowing the way. But this is necessary to mature our spiritual life, to mature our, our practice. Basically, there are three different kinds of faith. There's blind faith, there's bright faith, and there's verified faith. So I want to speak a little bit about each of these kinds of faith because you may find yourself not in one particular category so so much, but you might see various places that you could be at with different experiences. So blind faith is when we're not yet trusting our own experience because we don't really know it. We just borrow the words and the experiences of others and we kind of overlay them on our experience. We might hear ourselves saying the words of the teacher to describe what's going on for ourselves, but we might question whether we really know that experience or not. We haven't explored that inner terrain deeply enough or honestly enough to really know. So in this blind faith, we may not know it, but we're tending to misplace our trust in others. And it may be necessary for a time. It's not altogether bad. Sometimes we need to um, try out how, how it is, how it has been for the teacher we're listening to and see whether we can walk that way ourselves. So blind faith, in blind faith, I actually feel for myself and see in others that there is some faith there to begin with, of course. To even be in the place of opening to a spiritual path, we need some faith, even if it's a lot of blind faith. We're following blindly. Maybe it's just enough to follow some instructions but not understand why we're following the instructions. But we might have trust in the person who's giving the instructions. That's why we need faith in the teachers or faith in the teaching. I remember passages from the Theragatha, the Psalms of the, the sisters, the Theravada sisters, there are several psalms or poems that say, that say, go to a sister that you can trust. And I, it, it makes my heart tear up to say that, to go to a sister that you can trust. Because I remember the, the nuns that I know of in Burma that I feel that way towards. So this may be faith without complete wisdom, but it's still faith. It also has a kind of energy that follows instructions sometimes mechanically with a dull energy present, Uh, not with an investigative energy, but with a mechanical kind of energy. And sometimes, of course, this is necessary 
to begin with, with certain kinds of, uh, in our beginning of practice or in facing a new terrain of our practice, new layers of practice that we're coming to. Um, I remember uh, times when I would begin to get to a new layer or level or um, place of practice. And I would, even though I had deep faith in, I have deep faith in the Dhamma, I wouldn't know whether that instruction would really work. But it would always surprise me that I would apply that, just like pulling up my socks, or apply something that was very simple and see how easy it opened the mind, how easy it was onward leading. So there's a faith to be in our moment-to-moment experience, um, which comes about through blind faith. That leads us to saying, we can be with this moment of experience, then with this next moment of experience. And that begins to open the way towards uh, a deeper kind of faith, a more reliable kind of faith. There was a long time when I was content to hear from others what they would say about their practice and to live the spiritual life vicariously through them to be able to sing their praises, but not really know how to do it for myself. So this is blind faith. Um, It's a place where we need to go through, and it begins to develop what we call bright faith, because we can go take one moment at a time be mindful of this moment and this experience and the next moment. So in bright faith, we may be a little more curious about what's happening. Bright faith is when a person, a place, or a reading we hear, uh, or something brings us to a place of brightness in our heart. It lights a flame in our heart where it sort of um, illuminates the path for us in, in a clearer way than before. It shows us potential. It shows us possibility. It's like saying, I can do it. It's like feeling that. Our own confidence, our own inner light is beginning to shine now. And it's not borrowing that from others. It's really shining that from our own hearts on the path. There might be still a degree of dependence on others which could be necessary. But bright faith helps us to uh, see more, more for ourselves. So this is when we start getting really curious about the inner map, how to read it, uh, how to know where we are on this inner terrain. There's a willingness to be sort of lost and know that, okay, don't know this place, but uh, we can be mindful of this one thing in this place. And, And then maybe know the place back to something more secure, like going back to the breath. So we're not just following directions mechanically now, but we're doing it with some understanding of knowing our own balance, knowing what needs to be done. Um, I remember Manindra telling me stories of Deepama. Probably you've read Deepama's book, Knee Deep in Grace. It's about one of Manindra's students, a housewife in India who mastered uh, many of the very advanced practices and uh, went very deep into liberating wisdom for herself. Manindra would tell me these stories about the simple householder and how she did it, you know, raising uh, her own children and um, actually being a widow. And 
that gave me a lot of bright faith. That ignited the faith in my own heart. And I would think of her, even though I never met her, I had this chance of having her live with us for a while, and um, I agreed to um, help her, take care of her, and, and have her with her children live with us uh, just for her health. But it never came about. She died before that happened. But she always inspired me, not just the stories of um, her disintegrating her body and reintegrating it somewhere else, but that that wasn't that was kind of opened my eyes, but I never really wanted to do that. But just to be free from a heart that aches, a heart that's suffering from greed and hatred and not seeing clearly, that's what really inspires me about her. So this igniting of that flame, that aspiration to do that, to go that deeply myself for the benefit of all beings. And the spiritual compass becomes really, really clear during bright faith. Um, So the instructions are actually applied in a way that we can understand. We understand why we're doing it in this way. And we do it not blindly, not mechanically, but with understanding now. And so with that blind, uh, bright faith can come what we call a mature bright faith, where that kind of confidence gives us the courage to open to what's extremely difficult, not just floating along, but to uh, really go into the fire sometimes and know how to navigate our way through that. Our commitment becomes unwavering, and our commitment to realize the Dharma, the Dhamma, is so strong that... um, that's what we see. That's, that is our foremost aspiration because we know it's not just for ourselves, but it's for many others, even for our children, for our family, for the society, the community that we're living in. It's much bigger than just this small individual doing this work. It's when we can go to our teacher And our teacher doesn't just have compassion, but fierce compassion. And is able to... um, I remember going to Upandita once and saying to, to him, I'm so happy to see you. And his response back was, I'm not here to make you happy. I'm here to make you mindful. And it's like just giving it all back to me and saying, in a way, you can do it. It's not up to me. It's up to you. And so that, that kind of fierce compassion is a kind of fierce confidence, too, in our own ability to do it, where I don't have to be, you know, um, guided every step of the way. There comes a time when it's just like the Dharma's taking you already, and we feel that deeply, that... The Dharma's protecting us and it's guiding us along the way. But there has to be that willingness to open to what is coming. So then there is verified faith. This is the third kind of faith I was I outlined earlier. When through our own trials and tribulations we know the way for ourselves. The flame of faith and conviction is not affected by the winds of life. And sometimes, you know, we may feel this at certain points of our practice. And there is a time when we can feel this a lot. And it grows. This kind of verified faith keeps growing and where it takes over our practice. The winds of life... um, 
are so small compared to that faith that we have to get through it. Sometimes this is called unshakable faith. We may respect and value the light uh, and wisdom of others and still learn from it, but we know the way for ourselves and we have to find that way, we have to walk that way for ourselves. Sometimes it's felt that nothing that happens inside or outside can give rise to doubt. Because when fear or doubt arises, um, faith can, the supportive factor of faith, supporting mindfulness, can be so strong that it can just see doubt. Like Manindra would say, I know you, Mara. You know, Manindra would say that. Doubt is the biggest Mara. Mara is the tempter or the temptress that leads us away from our spiritual aspiration. And uh, Manindra would say, there will come a time, and it was true, you know, in various times it still comes, when what comes up in the mind when something's difficult is to see that difficulty and say, I know you, Mara. This is doubt. It's just doubt. It's just fear. And to be able to uh, see it arise and pass away like everything else. So traditionally, it's said that this unshakable faith or this verified faith is um, comes when the unconditioned is experienced or nibbana is experienced and things these far off things that we always hear about or entering the stream is experienced when the realization of uh, the cessation of suffering is experienced faith is such an important factor not just in terms of liberation i mean If we can acknowledge that as our aspiration, total liberation, then actually that's what the Buddhist teaching is all about. It has that, um, that's what the teaching, that's why the Buddha presented the teaching for that total liberation. But mostly in our daily lives, we need to know how to have the faith to just keep going one step at a time. Someone recently in a retreat this summer, a yogi, said that there was this uh, monk, a member of the Gyoto chanters, those Tibetan chanters with very deep voices, and uh, he's part of that that group of monks. And usually interviewers uh, or newspaper people want to interview him because he was one of them that walked out of Tibet and that um, he went through a lot, but he made it through. And the head of the the group says, it's no use interviewing him. He won't say very much. If you ask him how he got through, he'll just say, I got through one step at a time. And that took a lot of faith, one step at a time. So in that moment-to-moment to faith, it's so important to remember that if we can just get through this, there's some transformation that can come. There's this saying by Charles Dubois, the important thing is this, to be able at any moment to sacrifice what we are for what we could become. And that happens just in a moment of crossing over a threshold, of taking that next step, of bending over and pulling up our socks, of this just this one half breath. That's when we go to that transformation or through that transformation. Another time, um, the time when I went to Burma, 
and I told Seda Pandita that I wanted to clean my heart out more, purify the heart more. Um, I spent just a couple of months there ordaining as a nun, and the last month became really, really hot, and I was finding all kinds of reasons to leave, and I could leave early, you know, on a plane then. My ticket was such that it was easy to go. And so he knew it when I walked in the room to give my interview. You know, usually you have to walk in very slowly and you've got your notes there and you you put your notepad down, your little reminders of what to say in just the right timing and you do your bows. And I probably had that look plastered all over my face that I want to go home. You know, and he knew I was just about to say that. Say that, and he said in Pali, um, in a very beautiful way. And then it was translated in English by the nun that was translating that. Uh, you must be able to renounce a lesser thing, or to relinquish a lesser thing to gain something that's greater. And. Um, and he knew that you know that lesser thing was giving up and going home. And uh, so he said, uh, "My my big thing is I get homesick. That's I get lonesome for home. I'm just a big homebody." Um, and uh, so he knew that homesickness was coming up again. So able to get through that one and able to get through the heat even with all those robes, layers, and, um, and completed the two months that I wanted to complete. It, wasn't, it hasn't always been like that, but that time it was. The Buddha called faith a seed. Seeds are put into the darkness the soil of the earth. And like our faith, it's like going into the darkness sometimes. So we have to understand this, that faith goes into the darkness. It sends down roots, that seed, when it goes into the darkness. And the roots take in the nutrients. The nutrients the Buddha talked about as patience. And the main characteristic is trust, the main characteristic of faith. Just trusting those seeds that we put into the darkness, those seeds of faith. In time, the Buddha says, it will send up sprouts bearing fruits of serenity, bearing fruits of liberating insight. This is Wendell Berry's poem that speaks volumes to this. To go to the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark. Go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. So are you willing to do that? Do you have the kind of faith that is able to do that? That's what the practice asks of us. So doubt is the opposite of faith. And I'm going to leave that whole subject matter for for Steve because he's going to talk about the hindrances tomorrow, doubt being one of them. So faith's characteristic is trusting. This is from the Abhidhamma, Buddhist psychology. The function of faith is to clarify. It's manifested as resolution, courage, and energy. The proximate cause is something to have faith in. In other places it says, that suffering is a cause of faith to arise. 
So this is a ending with this poem. Let's see, which one shall I read? <laughs> so I'll read this one from Rilke. This is from his Book of Hours, Love Poems to God. I love the dark hours of my being. The mind deepens into them. There I can find, as in old letters, the days of my life already lived and held like a legend and understood. Then the knowing comes. I can open to another life that's wide and timeless. I want to unfold. Let no place in me hold itself closed. For where I am closed, I am false. So may faith open us to these places that are unfolding, even if they're dark. So let's sit for a moment. So thank you for listening to the Dhamma.